Welcome to Talent Hub Talk. I am Ben Duncan, and this is a place where prominent and inspirational figures from both the local ANZ and global Salesforce Ohana share their stories. In today's episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Chris Pearson, an Enterprise CRM Applications Director. Chris talks us through his early career, how he came to work with the Salesforce platform, and what the transition into leadership was like for him. We discuss the importance of still staying close to the technology as your responsibilities and teams grow, and what changes when you manage bigger and bigger environments. Chris provides some tips on what a Salesforce leader can do to make an impact when joining a new business, how he approaches building trust with team members, and talks candidly about some of the team retention challenges he faced over the last couple of years. Finally, Chris shares some advice on working with Salesforce partners and account executives, as well as discussing leadership lessons he wishes he knew earlier in his career. I hope that you enjoy the episode. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. No, it's my pleasure. I, um, you've been someone I've wanted to have on the, the podcast for a while, and I've seen you on some of the other podcasts that go around. Um, but I, uh, I love some of the, the, the comments you make on, on LinkedIn. Um, I, I sense a dry sense of humor. So uh, that, that's kind of what's led me to reaching out and, and wanting you to, to be on the show. Oh, great. Well, I'm glad someone appreciates it. <laughs> I'm sure lots of people do. Um, we're going to kind of unpick your career and some of the decisions you've made and, and um, things you've seen, I guess. But let's start at the beginning. Tell me a bit about your early career. And if you, you look back to what you did in the early days, have you kind of followed the path you were expecting to take? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I, I feel like I, from, a, from an academic background, I think I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I attended four-year university, studied finance, wasn't really thrilled with the career opportunities with that. Always had been um, a technology fan, aficionado, whatever you want to call it, um, on the side. Had always been interested in computers, but never took the plunge into pure development, whether that was MIS or computer science. So I spent a couple of years after after school working in the financial industry as like a, as a credit analyst, but then got an opportunity after working in, in what was called the mortgage industry. So uh, lending for, for real estate and got to be a business analyst. And at the time, I didn't even know what that meant. And I still think, you know, that was that was in the er, very early 2000s, the, the role itself really hadn't grown to the point that it is now where there's a full-on uh, BA body of knowledge, a certification authority, all sorts of practitioners out there. And I fell in love with the, with the job because it was working at the intersection of, of business and technology and really starting to map out how systems were, were supposed to behave to accomplish goals. And from there, it was really just changing, um, changing my my landscape, my perspective. Working from mortgage applications, and then getting to work into marketing automation, and then working with CRMs, and starting to to get exposed to all of those concepts. And I got thrown on to my very first Salesforce project, which was an org merge. 
which is you know one of the more complicated uh, projects out there where you're taking two entities that have their own Salesforce, they got their own rules, data, automations, and just all of the configuration and smashing it together. So I stumbled my way through through that project, um, probably made all sorts of mistakes. I know I did. Um, but from there was really just started to build my own knowledge about what is Salesforce? What is it? How does it work? And 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 how can we scale it for, for businesses? And I was lucky enough to get other opportunities that had larger, larger org footprints, more responsibility, um, working cross-functionally. And from there was, was able to, to graduate into that platform director role, which I've been acting in uh, for, for about seven years now, seven or eight years. So you're so um, seven or eight years in a platform director p- position, but when you first entered the Salesforce world, it was as a BA, right? That you were still in the the kind of um, business analysis function. BA with zero admin skills. I mean, it was the workflow rules, sharing rules. It might as well have been in Greek to me. I was a expert in use cases, requirements, user stories, tr- you know, kind of what I call like traditional BAs, like understanding what are the expectations and what are the systems supposed to do, like the responses, which if you know anything, you know, when, when we're working in, in, in the world of Salesforce, it's, it's very hard to translate that that kind of approach to to the security model and the user interface and all the backend stuff that that goes along with an entire platform like Salesforce. Yeah, because it's interesting. Like now, we're definitely seeing the separation of like functional consultant, business analysis, administration. Like, whereas when I got into the ecosystem, I think a lot of that BA role was kind of wrapped up under titles of you know like you you're an admin that needs to do business analysis, or you're a functional consultant that needs to do business analysis. So it's interesting that way back then there was in your role and and the company you're working for at the time like a a clear divide between like you were a BA and then was there someone else doing the the config, the admin work? Yes, there was. So it was uh, it was the very old school way of I did the requirements, handed it off to an individual consultant slash developer who would then implement those requirements. And we had we had experts from a data standpoint. So people who were experts at doing the ETL work. And we had the admins and developers who were doing um, some of the, the configuration. And it was it was way too long ago for me to even recall if there was any like custom Apex. That would have been way, way over my head at that time. Because and that's now I guess we're going back to that kind of model um, in that you know now there is you know the the BA role can be a standalone role where you don't do any configuration where I think there were, was a period of time where you would expect BAs to to be able to do config or or they yeah so I think that it's interesting it was kind of before the times that you operated in that way and now it's kind of more like that again. Are you seeing that in the industry? I find that to be a an odd kind of paradigm to put someone on a project who doesn't fully understand what the native capabilities of the platform. To me, it seems like you're setting people up for not as much success as someone who who at least understands how the sausage is made. What are the out-of-the-box capabilities so that you're not painting yourself into the corner of some custom solution because someone is really just documenting requirements without being without vetting them. 
Yeah, I think like the Salesforce BA still needs to know Salesforce. Like they need to like they the, the fact that they have Salesforce in their role should mean that they they know Salesforce. But like it's the the release of the BA certification as an example. Like that's now you know not just business analysis isn't just something people do. It's like a defined role within the Salesforce ecosystem. I guess that that is a good example because I, I think I've heard recently where they've have they changed their mind and omitted the prerequisite of um, of an admin for for the exam? So that's interesting. It'll be interesting to see what that impact is with customers and with orgs, and are they able to manage, uh, you know, and, perf- and perform the upgrades and the additional changes that that they're going to want to do in the future with with that kind of change to the to the guidelines for the certification. Yeah, I think it's ruffled a few feathers and, and some people think it's great and others don't don't agree with it. But yeah, definitely it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. So why why Salesforce? Because obviously it wasn't, you know, it wasn't necessarily your calling to be a Salesforce professional or to, to lead Salesforce teams in your early career, but it seems like you found Salesforce and have stuck with it. So what made you stick with Salesforce? The concepts just started to resonate with me. And all of a sudden it it inspired this curiosity in me where I don't know how to describe it other than I had this thirst for knowledge and I still do as far as like learning new things and learning. So back then it was maybe URL hacks, which is really dating me by saying that concept. That's that's, that's a no-no in the modern world. But it was it was to me, it was all about figuring out all the different creative ways of solving a problem and then recognizing what was the best of those options that would scale or that would require the least amount of maintenance. And as a traditional BA, those opportunities are harder to come by. I mean, you can, you can learn about non-functional requirements. You can learn about facilitating skills um, and interviewing and wait and stakeholder management. But to me, it's, it's not a, it's not something that, that you can consume on a daily basis. And, you know, it, it, with, with Salesforce, it feels like you can learn, you can, you can get that kind of drip campaign of knowledge every single day. And that, and that still holds true, um, for me today. Did you always see yourself going into a leadership role? Like from the early days, did you expect that you would one day lead teams? Did I expect to lead teams? I I think it was more natural. It was as I started to as I started to realize the impact that I could make. I realized that I was I was single threaded. There's only there's only one of me, and I can't work you know 24 hours a day. So I had to start looping in other people, sales operations professionals individuals who who sat within IT or other groups that maybe were not under the same reporting structure as me. And I, ha- and I, and I had to get them motivated to help implement change. Maybe I was stuck or maybe they had access to something that, that, that I couldn't. And so from there, it was, it was kind of almost like acting as a leader without those direct reporting lines and, and demonstrating that that kind of ownership and and then the impact that you were able, that I was able to make elevated me or gave me the opportunity to 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 take those leadership roles. So when you actually did have um, like a dotted line, or you you had a direct line into to people people uh, that you were leading, was there anything you struggled with or things that didn't come as naturally to you from actually like day to day management of people? Yes, sometimes 
knowing the solution. So knowing like I've solved this problem in my mind, but recognizing that the individual that, that I was working with, they need the opportunity to come to those same conclusions. And, and for all intents and purposes, my solution, I may, I may be myopic. There may be a different way of seeing things. And so you need to, to involve those team members, state the problem, and then let them come to the conclusions and help, help guide them. That was something that was a challenge um, in the early days because I was an admin. I wanted to make the change right then and there. Other areas would be process, you know, having a, a release, pro structured release process when you know how easy it is to, to make a certain change, testing in production, making configuration changes in production, knowing that, uh, you know, you can, you can with, with, in certain instances, you can do things without people seeing them, but that's really not a best practice. And I, I, there's plenty of times where I was losing losing hair, sweating because of a change that I just was insistent on making directly in production. So learn the hard way. So um, obviously, as as you progress in your career and and when you go into the leadership route, you kind of you move further away from the the day to day doing of technology, right? So you, I'm, I'm guessing it's probably been a while since you've gone in, and I mean, I might be wrong, but actually made a change in in hopefully not production, but um, but actually done some configuration, things like that. But as you've progressed, as your teams have grown, as your responsibilities have become more senior, how important has it been for you to continue understanding the technology, the, the releases, the evolution of the Salesforce platform and offering? For me, the knowledge and that curiosity factor means that I'm going to stay close to it. Am I going to build the most elegant flow with loops and uh, subflows and, you know, in Omni Studio um, where there's a large orchestration? No, I'm not that guy. But I, I am going to know uh, the capabilities and the, the concepts of design and the limitations. I think that is really important for leaders um, to recognize is still what is possible and what are what are the the pros and cons of going with a particular solution in that realm i definitely still operate and the other side of the fence is the data side you've got to understand the data model of the platform the new objects the changes the, the way that security is or isn't evolving that is critical, and that's served me very well over the years because to be able to quickly report on something or summarize something for, for an executive, if you're asked a question and you don't have time to, to be able to relay that to your team, uh, all of those scenarios have definitely have continued to happen uh, in my life. Each role seems to have progressed from from in terms of scale. And when I look at your your LinkedIn profile, you've gone from you know three hundred to nine hundred to twelve hundred to two thousand users. What changes for you managing a platform and a user base of of those sizes? And and like is is it the same managing a user base of three hundred to two thousand in terms of like you get to a certain point like over fifty and it it's just the same, or is there differences as as the user base goes up? My advice to, to other le uh, current leaders, aspiring leaders is figure out what, what are you interested in? What motivates you? The larger the org gets, 
typically means that you're going to have a lot more things to do, a lot more responsibilities. Change is going to be harder. The org likely is older. I don't know how much, how many new 5,000 user orgs are being spun up uh, in 2023 or 2024. Um, so these orgs of a of a certain size, they have a they have a certain amount of technical debt. They've had dozens, if not hundreds, of hands in the cookie jar making configuration changes that may not all be correct. And there's all sorts of surprises be- behind door number one, two, and three. And so as you as you scale, you you've got to be comfortable with peeling back the onion and looking through things and recognizing sometimes that. There was a really good reason for that. And sometimes it's it's a little bit kind of like a fact-finding mission. Like, I bet that they did that because of this. And so being able to stay on top of releases and recognize what was or wasn't possible in, in prior years can, can really make you valuable. Working in a smaller org or a new org you get to make changes more frequently. Uh, I'd say it's it's a more agile scenario. Um, but ultimately, I think it comes down to what business processes are supported in in the org. Is it mission critical? Is it? Uh, I've worked I worked in a in a commercial real estate firm where the adoption of CRM was was completely optional. So 100% commission based million dollar real estate brokers. No one is going to get mad at them if they're not logging their calls in CRM. Their, their paycheck is is what uh, motivates them. So that was a whole different paradigm. The way that we built features and introduced change really had to be different versus, let's say, where, I, where I'm at now, where certain critical processes have to be done in, in the CRM system. And so not only do those need the proper monitoring, the proper checks and balances and con- quality controls. But you know, just the way that you introduce changes is very different. I guess every environment is different, like you, you've just kind of highlighted. Like, What are some of the things that you would consistently do when you move between companies? So let, let's say when you moved into your most recent role, you, you spoke earlier about the importance of understanding the data model and um, you know knowing your way around the org and why things have been built a certain way. But what can you do to get yourself off to, I guess, a fast start to add value quickly to kind of get some runs on the board early in a new role as a leader? I've got a colleague who I will name drop out there. I think his name is Nick Briner. He had this, he posted, it was was months ago, but I encourage anyone to go check his post. He had this checklist, which was very similar to my internal undocumented uh, checklist of what happens when I get in a new org. But you're, you're looking through company information. How many, how many licenses are there? You're looking at the at sales processes, you know, to the data storage, poking around in the user interface, seeing what, what do things look like? How many different apps? What are the installed packages? Starting to then meet with the team members that support uh, the application. That's even more valuable than what you can uncover yourself by looking through profiles and security rules and and things of that nature. There's at least a dozen different places of metadata that I would go look at to paint a picture as far as how mature is this this org and what, what all are they using. I see 
200 plus case assignment rules, then I'm probably going to think that, okay, there's some a fair amount of complexity on, on the service side. Things like that um, are kind of part of my internal checklist when I'm working in a new org. What about like with the people then? Are you the kind of guy that would sit down with like everyone as a team or do you take people individually to try and understand their like motivations? And like you, you manage big teams, right? Like going into managing a big team must be challenging because you've kind of got, to, I guess, impress people. Like you've got to show that you're there to help them, to support them, to remove any roadblocks. Like how do you build trust with your team? That's a great question. It's it's always interesting whenever you come with a new team, the team doesn't know you, likely. I mean, there may be some team members who are part of the interview process, but they don't know what you know, and you don't know what they know. So I, I do like to, to recognize the individual's role and, and like to kind of maybe bring a couple topics to an individual conversation. Team conversations are great, but you're really not going to get to know an individual in, in that kind of format. Um, and I like to, I've got two simple kind of probing questions that I, that I like to ask. And that's uh, what, what should not change regarding the team, the, the, or the structure, the way that, uh, the way that you work. And then, and what would you like to see changed? And, and those are broad enough questions where you can start to get a picture of, of what people care about. I've heard things such as, um, the way the team interacts and the support that the, t- that the team provides to each other as things that shouldn't change. And I think the way that uh, what should change is, well, you know, we're, we're constantly reacting and we're not ahead of changes and things are breaking. We're not, a, not aware of when certain things happen. Those are kind of exa- those are examples that I've, I've gotten as far as what should change, which may then feed into a great set of questions with Maybe an integration developer. So it's it's almost like pe- the questions you ask and the answers, you're able to apply those to the next person that you're meeting. And each conversation, the quality goes higher and higher because you've got a, a clearer picture of, of what you're working with. And managing big teams is always challenging, but managing teams through crazy periods like COVID where you know there was so much issues around retention and things like that, like was that... Was retention one of your biggest challenges over the, the last few years? Absolutely. When I, I, I joined an organization that had a very tight, my, my current gig, had a very tight-knit group. The senior solution architect was sort of the mother figure of, of the org, really had helped grow and had kind of been there from from almost the the ground floor really helped scale the the app and so she was the one that was that was the glue so to speak of keeping the team together but there was you know there's there's cracks in the way that they were delivering change you know, the org had grown so much that some of the processes and some of the things that they built weren't scaling she decided to to be a full-time mom and vacate her her position from there, it was a trickle effect where, call it 70, 80% of the team decided to, to take a new opportunity, the great resignation. I mean, I was living and breathing it. To be honest, there, it was times where I, I questioned myself. I was emotional outside of work saying, you know, what, what am I doing wrong here? But I think when we conducted all the, the exit interviews, it was the loss of her. And then it was just the opportunity to, to, to take a, a look at what else was out there. 
so that was a rebuilding year for me in the, in the world of sports analogies. Um, and now we've got a, a, a great team. That interview process for me, I'm, I'm very particular about you know, resumes and kind of the way that people approach problems and all that. So we have a, a really great team of uh, incredible thinkers and doers. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know about it. So that was an interesting question, but that that must have been a nightmare, like in terms of coming into this team. And like you said, you'd question yourself, you'd question everything, right? Because it's hard to know why people are, are really leaving a role. Um, and you must have joined a particularly challenging time in that it was really hard to recruit people as well. You know, salaries were going crazy. Retention was a, a massive problem for all companies. But then to to lose that much of, of a team that was established, obviously there's some benefits to that as well, because then you can kind of help shape that team and get the people that you, you know, you really want in each role, but it must've been a crazy year. Absolutely. The knowledge capital that walked out the door, the hidden processes that were being performed by individuals. We you know, may have taken a couple months for us to figure out, oh, somebody was, uh, you know, doing something on the side that was really important that they you know, weren't talking about. So I had all sorts of those uh, surprises brought in a partner to help augment uh, the team. And so having to set the strategy with how that partner is going to work and the type of change that they're going to they're going to implement and the latitude that they have to make decisions. So it really it really does. It really did flip the, the entire world upside down and, and took me a little bit to, to get things right in. So then let's look at the the benefits or the the positive side of leadership, um, because, I mean, that must have uh, been a challenging year, probably more challenging than, than most you've had through your leadership career, because you lead a team of, I think it's 26 people. 26 is like the topping out. That was when we were at our full max, multiple parallel projects, capital projects going on, as well as what I like to call just the business as usual, the, the keeping the lights on. So we flex according to the business. The market a year or so ago is, was very different. You know, the environment, the macro environment was very different. So we're so we've slimmed down. So we're about at uh, twelve to to fifteen or so now, which is still a big team in the Salesforce world. Like we, you know, in Australia, we we see you know not that many companies that would have teams of twelve to fifteen in in Salesforce. It's really the big enterprises, and you know, the average might be anywhere from one to kind of five or six. So what, what do you like about and, and what do you get out of leading a team? Like what's, what puts a smile on your face from, from a leadership perspective? Seeing the growth of individuals, seeing them go from one type of mindset to that, uh, you know, to I'm going to do what the, what the ticket says to I'm going to think about all the other impacts and all the other extraneous actions or considerations that maybe weren't spelled out in that initial request and seeing them demonstrate that ownership, that to me is really rewarding. That's probably the number one thing that I get motivated by. I love to see when we introduce new concepts and we're able to apply new things. I get really jazzed when some team members start to talk about some of the changes that we've adopted this year uh, by looking at like a, a change intelligence platform. So a system that can 
do a little bit more than the where is this used button in Salesforce and really analyze and, and provide more data about like what what all is the impact of whatever the field or the action or the button or whatever it is, the, the class that you're that you're modifying or leveraging some of the GPT, some of the AI tools to get answers and to not have to spend so much time banging your head against the desk because you can't get the syntax right of a formula or a, or a validation rule. So those things really excite me because it's it's br- bringing change, bringing new ways to, to work to the team and seeing them embrace that is very rewarding. And you mentioned using partners to augment teams, and I'm guessing you've worked with numerous partners and and numerous um, account executives from Salesforce over the years. So I guess what have you learned? Like if someone's listening to this and they're new to, to taking responsibility for a Salesforce platform and a Salesforce environment, what have you learned over the years about working with partners and AEs that would be useful for someone that's earlier in their career? Working with partners, I would say to get involved in the design. You, the most important thing and probably some of the biggest mistakes that I have made would have been letting people work in a closet or in another's area in designing a solution and then, and then simply being on the, on the sidelines where it's, it's time for go live and here's what we built and here's how it works. That's not a, not a great, uh, position to be in if you're responsible for the entire platform. You should know the data model. You need to know that because the data model is is kind of like the, the heart of the entire org or the entire the, the body of the solution. So be, being involved with that, setting some rules of engagement. How, how do you want that partner to interact with the business? Do you want to be invited to those meetings? Do you want to be briefed prior to engaging with the business? The older I get, the more that I don't like surprises. <laughs> when you're young, it's like, oh, what's, you know, I love surprises because maybe there's a gift or a surprise or something fun. I've learned the hard way that executives, business leaders, nobody likes to be caught off guard, whether it's in a public forum or, or private. So finding ways to set the, the rules up so that you're avoiding surprises with a, with a partner would be my advice. For AEs, Oh, that's uh, I've I've worked with I've only had a couple of quality ones, and I think the quality ones really took an interest in the business problems, started to to use the words that I would talk about and figure out like how would a, a potential solution work as opposed to pitching features or coming across like they're reading a script that you feel like that you're, you're, you're being read to or talked to like company A and company B. And it's, it's almost like they're swapped. They could easily swap out company names and individual names. So the, the AEs that, that have been to me really successful took a real interest in, in the business, the team, um, and, and the relationship. It's interesting you say that. Like, I think we're quite fortunate here in Australia to have some some really incredible Salesforce AEs. And there's certain people within Salesforce that I speak to that that have this um, like thirst for transformation. And then they're not like transformation execs. They're they're Salesforce AEs. So their their role is to sell technology, but they 
they really understand the the, the landscape, like the global economics, like what's driving decisions, what's driving change, how that's going to impact the, their customer. And, and they want us to have a seat at the table as well. It's like we, we consult on what does the talent landscape look like? How are these transformations going to take shape? And I think like they understand the big picture, right? They're not just selling, they're, they're understanding how everything fits together. Um, and they're the ones from what I see make the biggest impact for their customers, but also are the most successful in terms of what they sell. Would you say that um, the great ones are are proactive as well? I mean, I, I, to me, there's it's a fine line between you know the the daily or the weekly check ins. How are things going? Do you need more licenses? I've looked at your uh, your adoption metrics and noticed a couple trends. Didn't know if you um, wanted to jump on the call and and talk about these. Maybe we have some strategies. To me, those are two vastly different approaches, which are going to lead to two different outcomes. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's the same in most sales, right? Like you don't want to come across as having commission breath, right? And I think that first, like just checking in, you know, how are you? When can we catch up? How have you heard about this new product we're selling is different from, yeah, being a consultant and actually like, and I think that's what people need to be, right? Consultants. It's, it's like consulting around how things that might not necessarily turn into a sale, but could, could ultimately benefit you as a customer. And that's the same. Like I get brought in by some of the AEs to talk to their customers about, the the market and you know what's happening in terms of salaries and and trends and things like that and and I go into those conversations as you know you might not ever need to use my services but here's what I'm seeing in the market and even if that enables you to go out and recruit yourself directly then then so be it you know at least I'm helping shape that discussion and give you the information you need they're the A's that bring us in on those discussions are doing it as a value add not as a way of like selling more seats but just helping that customer be more successful Knowing what I know about you, I think you, the way that you communicate, you make people feel like they're important and like they matter. And I think that it's just a communication style where I've been the solo admin, where uh, the AE, you know, looked at me as a, um, as a, as a barrier towards selling more licenses. And, and that relationship, you know, that, that's kind of how that relationship was. And there, there wasn't a great, but the ones that, see you as a partner that said, you know, that whether there's truth to it or not, but saying like, you're a very important customer and things like that, that just, it kind of just builds more trust between the the two parties. And I think it, it's going to lead to more success. Yeah, hundred percent. So final question, what's the, the one leadership lesson that you know now that you wish you knew at the beginning of your leadership journey? Progress takes so many forms. I think there's there are days where I can get so frustrated because I, I feel like either I'm not the the leader that I that I think I, I should be, or I'm not making the change that um, that I want to be, or that I, I should be making a, a larger amount of impact, and that, and that I'm not. And maybe the team isn't where isn't getting grasping concepts or or new capabilities like like I thought. But then there's other days where you're you're riding a complete high, you're seeing results in other formats. And so as a leader, you've really just got to have that, that antenna up and to be able to pay attention and look for all the various ways of progress because it, it really will impact the way that you manage, the way that you communicate. No one wants to work for someone who's impatient cutting people off constantly frustrated or negative and to me those are those are traits of someone who's 
who's not seeing progress uh, according to, to, to whatever milestones or plan that they have. And so if you're able to recognize all the different ways that people can demonstrate and, and, and make change and notice that, I think you're going to be, you're going to have a better state of mental health and you're going to be a more effective leader. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I'm, I'm, I just regret um, it taking so long for me to reach out and ask you to come on. Great to chat with you. Thank you so much. This was a complete honor of, of mine to, to, to get to chat with you. I'd love to, to catch up with you and, and uh, Mr. Hopper at some point. So uh, next time I head over to the US, hopefully uh, you guys will be around. Definitely. I love that. So that's a wrap for this week's episode. And thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the chat. And if you did, please make sure you have subscribed for future episodes that are coming through. I would also be very grateful if you would consider leaving a review on your chosen podcast platform as five-star reviews will help us to reach more trailblazers from across the world. I look forward to sharing another episode with you soon. And thanks again.